Well, what a glorious song that just really stirred me up uh, to preach. So uh, my name is John McHale, and uh, it's one of my joys, one of my greatest joys to be a pastor here. Uh, And I do a lot of work with uh, community groups and a ministry called Soul Care, and just have been really thrilled with what I've seen God doing in you all and through you all. Uh, It's really very exciting. And I'm honored this morning to open up God's Word with you. Uh, We're going to be in Amos 3 to 4. And so if you want to turn there, as you turn, uh, let me just set us up and give us some context for uh, our passage this morning. Uh, Amos, the book of Amos, maybe is not uh, a book you're super familiar with, but it's in the Old Testament. It's one of the prophetic books. And the Old Testament is predominantly about the kingdom of Israel. A people that God uh, captured, or a people that God delivered from slavery, and He made them His own people. He was to be their God. He saved them, delivered them from slavery, gave them a land, and established them as a kingdom to be a light to the nations. They were intended to reflect God's glory to the nations. Um, and uh, basically, the shining uh, climax of this vision was under the reign and rule of King David and King Solomon. This was, if we read the Old Testament, this is when the kingdom of Israel was everything God intended for it to be. But at the end of the reign of King Solomon, tragedy struck and the kingdom fractured. And there was now two kingdoms in the land of Israel. You had the southern kingdom, uh, which is often referred to as Judah, And you had the northern kingdom, which is often referred to as Israel in the uh, prophetic literature. Now, Amos was a sheep breeder by trade. Maybe he had a little uh, side business in farming. But he was a sheep breeder who became a prophet. And he's coming from the southern kingdom to the northern kingdom. And he's bringing a message of judgment. Now, the northern kingdom, from their perspective was in a great time of prosperity. They felt blessed by God. Religious activity was buzzing. They had six services on Sunday. Like they were killing it. And when they heard the message from Amos, they were like, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. You must be mistaken. And in Amos 1 and 2, we're introduced to Amos's message, a message of judgment. And God goes through and gives judgment to all of the nations around Israel. But really the reason why he does that, if you look at a map and you point out all of the nations that are mentioned, it's drawing a giant bullseye around the people of Israel. And we're introduced in Amos 1 and 2 to this message of judgment. And as we work through 3 and 4, we're going to see the reasons for the judgment developed and defined for us And then my hope is that we would be challenged by them uh, towards repentance and renewed faith and worship of our God. Amos 3, uh, we're going to read from starting in verse 13 and go through chapter 4, verse 5. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts that on the day I will punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. 
Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go throughout the, throughout the, you shall go throughout the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. Let me pray over our time as we uh, seek to hear from God through this passage. Lord, we pause in this moment um, and know that we just, we need you. We need you here in this moment to give us ears to hear. And so I pray that you would unclog our ears with the wax of lethargy, comfort, complacency. If we need spiritual Q-tips, Lord, dig out the wax and open up our ears to hear your voice from this passage. And I pray by your spirit that you would tenderize our hearts that we would gladly, willingly be molded and shaped by your word. And I pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now to start this morning, I want to talk about the Hunger Games. You may be familiar with the Hunger Games. You read the books or maybe saw the movies. But the Hunger Games is a story about a hero. And that hero is named Katniss Everdeen. And the setting of the story is a dystopian society. It's a society that emerged out of great war, great famine, great turmoil. There is this, this empire that emerged called Panem. And we meet Katniss Everdeen when she has, um, when she has basically what, what happened was in the Hunger Games, the story, in an effort to bring peace and order, the capital city, the people who were in charge, the capital city, they, they established and organized the whole region around 12 districts. And they created this thing called the Hunger Games. And the Hunger Games were a televised death match. This was their great idea to establish peace and keep order in the region. And we meet the hero, Katniss, when she sacrifices herself, when her sister is uh, called to be a tribute in the Hunger Games, Katniss takes her place. And Katniss was a part of one of the poorest districts, District 12. And she was the sole provider for her family. And so she didn't even know what, what's going to happen to my family, but I have to do this in order to save my sister. And she goes to the Hunger Games. One of the striking contrast in this story is the inordinate disproportions of wealth between the capital and District 12. And as you watch the film, it's just so abundantly apparent. The capital had it all. They had the best food. They had mountains and a surplus of food. They had the grandest buildings. They had the fanciest clothes. And Katniss came from nothing. 
She came from, they were struggling to survive from starvation. And she comes to the capital astonished by what she finds. She feels like she's just stepped on another planet. Now, the reason I bring this up is to try and get at what's happening with the people of the capital. When you watch the film, the people of the capital are just, they're laughing, they're drinking, they're eating, and they're missing the grave injustice that's right in front of their eyes, televised into their living rooms. They're missing it. And it seems to me that the reason is because the people of the capital, the, the people of the capital had missed things of most importance. They had lost themselves to the grandness of their lives and they had missed the things that really matter. Now we, as God's people, who live in a great time of prosperity, probably one of the healthiest, wealthiest societies in history, we must be careful that we are concerned with the things that matter. And as God's people, we must be concerned with the things that matter to God's heart. And our passage this morning is inviting us to be concerned with our worship. And as we study this passage, what we're going to see is that God desires true worship from his people. He desires true worship from his people. There's a kind of worship that God rejects. There's a kind of worship that grieves the heart of God. And we're going to see that in the people of Israel and what had happened in the northern kingdom of Israel. And then as we look at that, we're going to draw out two truths about what is true worship. And the first one is that true worship should change our lives. When we gather on Sunday morning, we should be offering up our lives and our hearts to God to be molded and shaped by his word. And then also we're going to see that true worship is loving God with our whole heart. It's a posture of leaning in. When we gather and we sing and we hear the preaching of his word, we pray that we are leaning in with a heart posture that is wholly devoted to the Lord in love and in delight, enjoying him. So let's look at the kind of worship that God rejects and that displeases his heart. A large part of the book of Amos, if you read through it, is God pronouncing judgment on the people of Israel because of their false worship. Their worship had been polluted and corrupted. Look at verse 13 in chapter 3. We're introduced to this message. He says, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. God is declaring that there is a day fixed in the future where he will punish Israel for their false worship. And he refers to them, he uses, the, he uses the title House of Jacob. This is very, very important because what God is doing is he's linking this message to his covenant relationship with the people of Israel. 
He's saying, I've, I've loved you. I've been committed to you. You've committed to me. I've given you instructions for true worship. And you've gone out and polluted it. You've rejected me continually and rebelled against me in my ways. Israel had broken the covenant and their worship was polluted with idolatry and injustice and it grieves the heart of God. And in the passage that we just read, we see God punishing the altars of Bethel. What's that about? He cut, he's talking about cutting off the horns of the altar. What he's trying to help us understand is that the worship of Israel had become useless. It was worthless. It had been polluted, and so all of the sacrifices were not, they were not accomplishing anything. And so God is saying, I'm going to destroy your altar because it doesn't even matter. Your worship is useless. It's a kind of worship that grieves the heart of God. Now it's important for us as the church, the New Testament people of God, it's important for us to feel the weight of this passage. And sometimes a book like this, a message of judgment, is, it's not kind of what we wake up to. We got our coffee. Oh, I'm going to read Amos. It's just not typically where we go. So we want to step into this, really feeling the weight of this message. And be struck by the reality that there's a type of worship that grieves the heart of God. So when we come and gather on Sunday morning, there is a kind of posture that grieves God's heart. But at the same time, as the new covenant people of God, this is an opportunity for us to enjoy Jesus to celebrate all he has done on the cross. Because the kind of punishment that Israel is facing is a punishment that we do not face because of Jesus. Jesus absorbs the wrath of God. He pays the penalty for his sin. And so this is an opportunity for us to worship Jesus and celebrate him as we study a passage of judgment, as we explore how we can be challenged by it, we must remember that our salvation is secure in the finished work of Jesus. And he has paid the price for our sin. But that is not an opportunity to take his grace for granted. And the challenge this morning is for our drift. We're challenged out of comfort and complacency. The drift of our hearts is to become complacent. And God is challenging that as we study this passage. And so what is true worship? If there's a kind of worship that grieves the heart of God, what is true worship? Well, we said already that one truth we can hold up is that true worship should change our lives. Look at uh, verse 15 in chapter 3. God continues pronouncing judgment on Israel. And he says, I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great mansions shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. In these verses, 
uh, we discover the justification God has in his righteousness and in his holiness to judge Israel's worship. And what we discover as we study this passage is that the elite Israelites, the people of the city, the people in charge, they were actually oppressing the poor as a means to fund their lavish lifestyle. They gained their wealth through corruption and oppression. And this totally, just totally grieves God. And in chapter 4, verse 1, he addresses the wealthy women of the city. And he says, you crush the needy and at the same time ask for a drink. Bring us more drinks. And in the back of our mind, we have that analogy of the Hunger Games. The people of the city eating and drinking and laughing while there's grave injustice right before their eyes. They missed what really mattered. And the people of Israel, they missed what really mattered to the heart of God. Yet they they were in a time of great prosperity, great blessing. Worship was abundant. The temple was buzzing. They had six services on Sunday. They were crushing it. But they neglected to open up their hearts and their lives to God's word. They neglected to seek the Lord and invite him to challenge and shape and mold and nourish with the truth of his word. True worship should change our lives. Now, I've I've mentioned already, um, we live in, I mean, historically speaking, we live in a time of blessing. We live in one of the healthiest, wealthiest times. And the great temptation for us as God's people in a time of plenty is complacency. I was uh, at a church service one time and I sat next to a gentleman who was about two seats away from me and I said, hey, how's it going? He didn't know I was a pastor. Um, People tend to kind of tailor what they say when they know you're a pastor. But he, he looked at me, he leaned back, crossed his arms, and he said, I'm pretty comfortable. And that type of attitude should concern us as we gather to worship the God of creation and the God of salvation. We should be rejecting a posture of comfort, a posture of complacency. And what this passage is doing is it's inviting us to not lean back in comfort, but to lean in in worship. And to give our hearts and lives to God and say, change me. Mold me and shape me according to your word. I want to serve you. I want to be a servant that is molded and led. I want you to be my Lord. That's the kind of worship that God desires from us. I was thinking about this point, and I came up with three questions that we could ask. So if you want to write these down and tuck them away in your Bible, these are three questions that you could, you could read through as you prepare to come on Sunday, even while you're here worshiping. First question, am I amazed by Jesus? I have a friend He's a college pastor here, Wade Yurick, and he asked me kind of a rendition of this question on a regular basis, and I'm always struck by it. I'm always jolted awake 
Like, that is such an important thing for me to remember. Am I amazed by Jesus? And if the answer is no, that's okay. Our posture of coming and gathering with God's people should be seeking God. Amaze me by Jesus. I want to be amazed by the glory of Christ and all that he has done for my salvation. Second question, am I allowing God's word to speak to me? Maybe through an imperfect preacher. Maybe through a clunky service. Has music we don't like. Are we coming to worship with a heart posture that says, shape and mold me. I want to be shaped and molded into the image of Jesus. And then the last question is, is repentance a regular result from my worship? Have I ever changed anything about my life because I've been with God's people and I've heard his word proclaimed? I've sung his praises. Maybe it's a time where you just felt convicted by a sin. Maybe it's a time where you were astonished by the cross and you were believing lies about who you were in the kingdom and you were astonished. You renewed to remember the significance of the cross. True worship should change our lives. But the second truth is that true worship is loving God with our whole heart. It's, it's, it's a posture of giving our hearts, our affections, everything about us to love God when we gather on Sunday that will inevitably spill out into our weeks. If you look at chapter 4, verse 4 to 5, there's this prophetic taunt that Amos gives to the people of Israel. He says, Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel. It's a lot of religious activity in that passage. And this would have been incredibly jarring for the people of Israel, especially the people in Bethel. That was their primary worship site. That was where all the magic happened, where the worship was daily and continual. And Amos is saying, come, come to Bethel and sin. And how, how, so how did, how did their worship site become a place of sin? Well, what we see in the book of Amos, and specifically in uh, chapter 2, verse 8, is we see that the worship of Israel had been given over to rampant idolatry. And in verse 8 of chapter 2, God says, They lay themselves down beside every altar. And in the house of their God, in the temple, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So when Israel gathered for worship at Bethel, they had this menu of options. They said, hey, we got it all here. You want to worship a calf, a golden calf? It's right down the street. You want to worship Baal and all of the practices that go along with that? We, you can do that here. You can even do that while you're worshiping Yahweh. And what had happened is they had amalgamated the worship of Yahweh with all of the other gods and its practices. And this grieved the heart 
of God. And there's this prophetic taunt in verse 4 to 5. And what we see is the prophet taunting them, saying, hey, keep offering your sacrifices, keep giving your tithes, because you love so much to do that. And that same word for love is the kind of word that's used of their covenant relationship. And what had happened is Israel had become so in love with religious activity, void of any real affection for the Lord. Their worship was an end in and of itself. And true worship is loving God with our whole heart. And that's what God is inviting us as the people of God here, is to be a people that are giving our hearts, our minds, our very beings on a Sunday morning, giving it all to God in love. That we come on a Sunday morning seeking to delight in God himself and his promises in his word. There's a, a show uh, called Cheaters. I, ha- I don't watch it, but I've heard about it. I've seen clips from it. Um, and what happens in the show <clears throat> is uh, there's a husband or a wife and maybe are suspicious of their significant other, that maybe they're being unfaithful. And they contact the show. The show hires detectives, and they go and figure out if this is happening or not. And if it is, the show has a host, and the host comes, and they go and confront the person live on TV. And the whole thing is captured, and it's incredibly sad and tragic. But this is, in some ways, what the prophet Amos is doing. He's going with God, And he's looking at Israel and he's saying, God has been so faithful to you. God has secured your salvation. And you have been unfaithful to him. You have mixed your worship with all of these rival rival gods and other lovers. And so, for us this morning, we know that the temptation, we know that we're not going to walk in one Sunday and there'd be a golden calf up on the stage. Like, that's not going to happen. But America is full of idols. Materialism, money, sports, success. We are full of things that rival our love, our wholehearted devotion to God. And they become idols when they distract us from being wholehearted, devoted to God and to serve him. And the challenge from this passage is to be concerned when we come as God's people and we gather together to be concerned that we are rejecting all other loves and consecrating ourselves to God and God alone. That we are leaning in and seeking to give ourselves to God. And so, I don't know what this looks like for you, but maybe as you come and you are a part of a service, maybe the temptation is is just check Instagram, or maybe check ESPN, check the scores. And I'm I'm not dogging on you. If there's like a big game and you check the score once, that's not what I'm talking about. But if there is a regular 
pull towards your smartphone to just kind of escape from what's happening here. That could be a rival to your love for God. When we gather, maybe, maybe you're, you're just really concerned with who you're connecting with socially on a Sunday morning. And that is distracting you from what's happening here. Oh, look, so-and-so is sitting with that person. And it's distracting you from being focused on God. I don't know what it is, but the Lord is inviting us because of all that Christ has done to secure our salvation, to be concerned with our worship and to be leaning in, to be trying to uh, find ways where we can really give ourselves to the Lord in worship. Because God desires true worship from his people. That's what we see in Amos 3 to 4. And the temptation facing all of us in this great time of blessing, we have it all. The temptation is to take for granted what Jesus has purchased and to veer in complacency and comfort. But God is inviting us to repent. He's inviting us to recognize that there is a kind of worship that grieves the heart of God. The kind of worship he desires is the kind of posture that says, hey, Lord, I'm here and I want to be shaped and molded by you. I want to allow your word and your spirit to change me, to build me up, to encourage me, and also, it is the kind of worship that is wholehearted devotion, love and delight for God and God alone. And my prayer is that we, as the people of God in the city of Iowa City, city of Corvo, city of North Liberty, wherever you are, that we would be the people of God that is marked by true worship, that is marked by that leaning in every Sunday, that we would be shaped and molded and look different look more like God. We could be a light to our city. Let me pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for the book of Amos. Uh, we thank you for uh, the energy and the strength just to, to work through a passage like Amos 3 to 4. Um, we thank you for Jesus and all he has done for us on the cross. I pray that you would even stir our affection now for him. Guard our hearts from taking his grace from granted. Guard us from complacency and comfort and make us a people of true worship, delighting in you and celebrating everything you have done for us. And I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.